Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. Today's episode is a conversation with Hall of Fame tennis writer Steve Flink. At this point, needs no introduction. We do this after every major. Uh, I love seeing so many people on Twitter asking for it, waiting for it. Uh, it's always it's always great, and uh, it makes me happy. Uh, this was a good one. We go about an hour. I'll uh, I'll say right off the top, first forty minutes. Pretty focused on Novak Djokovic, a little bit of Carlos Alcaraz uh, towards the beginning. And then after that, we branch out, talk about some other players, talk about some other topics. Uh, Make sure you stay for the end where we talk about grass contenders uh, over the course of the next month. So without further ado, here is Steve Flink. We're joined once again by Hall of Fame tennis writer Steve Flink. His latest book is Pete Sampras Greatness Revisited. And after every major, we get together and and talk shop recap and analyze everything we just saw over the course of the last two weeks uh pleasure as always steve thanks for coming on again uh, pleasure's mine gil i always look forward to these discussions and and uh, i wish they could be even more than four times a year but it, it's it's a great uh it's a lot of fun for me always at, after each major because i think we dissect it as, as as much as possible and and by the way People, I mean, I get questions all the time. Like people would love it to be more than four times here, and I would too. But I, I do think it's more special this way. Yeah, I you know, agree. It builds it up. I agree. Totally agree. <laughs> okay. Novak Djokovic with his historic 23rd major, now the all-time leader in Grand Slam men's singles titles. I want to start, though, with the semifinal when, when it comes to Novak, because I think coming into the tournament, there was a sense that the two obstacles were, one, the health of the elbow, and then, two, you'll probably have to beat Carlos Alcaraz. So, beginning there, what were your takeaways from how that Alcaraz match went down? I thought that Djokovic start, started the match magnificently. Uh, you know, he got his early break. Then he had two tough service games at the end, and he fought up some break points, and he served it out despite some tension. But I felt like he was in control of the match, that he was neutralizing Carlos's forehand with his own pace and depth off the forehand. I think he, you know, which in a way was the way he played their previous match, which he lost in Spain a year ago. But I think he played it the right way, and I think he learned something from that. And I felt like he was in control then. There was that incident in the middle of the second set where he shook out his arm, you know, and and he still managed to hold serve. But uh, when they went to the changeover at 4-3, still on serve, uh, you know, the trainer rubbed the arm. And I think he was a little preoccupied with it. I don't think it was anything too serious, but he he did lose his serve for the first time in the next game. Mm -hmm. So suddenly he's down 5-3 and the match is starting to change. Then I thought he played a couple of great games. He played a terrific game to break back and then had the, the love 40 hold. Triple set point down at 4-5 and he won five straight points and played them all quite remarkably. He was really going after his shots. He came in on the first one and he served and volleyed on, an, on another one and he was really aggressive. And then he had, I thought, had he had he sealed the break point that he had at 5 all. Carlos was, I think, a little, that made Carlos nervous, I thought, when Djokovic surged back there to get back to five all. And then he had a fairly routine high backhand at five all that he hit wide cross court. 
which could have given him a chance to serve out the set. And I think that Bob must, again, it's the psychology is fascinating because I think he went to the changeover now disappointed. He'd made the comeback, but instead of being glad to be, have a chance to serve his way into a tie break, he was a little distressed about not converting the break point and served and volleyed on the first point of the next game and pit, put the backhand cross-court volley wide. And then Carlos pounced from there and broke him at love. So obviously, like, I'm sure you felt the same way, Gil. I'm thinking at that stage, wow, this is going to be some mighty tussle from here uh, for both of them, for both of them, because, you know, inevitably it was going to be probably a four-hour match, most likely, uh, in that range at least, because you would have potentially had a couple of really close sets and maybe a five-setter. But I did feel that Djokovic going to the locker room, coming back, he was going to do his usual, I'm in, I'm back I'm here. I'm not gone. I, I'm starting over, which is what he said after the match. He was like, okay, we start over at one set all. And then, of course, the incident with Carlos. I don't know how you felt about it. There were a few minor signs a few games earlier that something was bothering him, but then the cramping came on so severely. And what I didn't realize until later is at the time I thought it was, yes, you saw him shake his hand up, but I thought it was predominantly the legs. And he just said it was literally all over his body. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that was a shame. And what I thought was interesting, Gil, I want to get your impressions, was how he talked about the tension, how it was it was all deep tension. And it was related specifically to playing Novak. It was an incredibly honest thing to say for a prideful champion who's already won a major, the U.S. Open last year, and who came in here as the top seed and anticipated by many to win the title, that he would acknowledge that it was the... It, the uh, the apprehension was brought on by playing Djokovic on a big stage, which was a great compliment, I thought, to Djokovic. Give me your impressions. That's a great point, Steve, because you, you do get the sense that I think, I think based on those comments, it wasn't that it was a major semifinal. It's that it's this matchup that was built up not just by people like us who, who talk about the sport. I'm sure, I mean, Carlitos and Novak are both well aware of how these this last year or so has played out where both of them have been really kind of the best in the world together but it's just so happened where they haven't been able to play each other so right. there was there was just a lot of build up and i just thought it was fascinating that at the end of the day it it was uh tension and pressure and and just to also cover my bases here the science around cramping I've looked into it. I've done research research on it, uh, particularly for a piece that I did uh, on Holgaruna. The science is incredibly murky. It is it is not clear cut. Obviously, dehydration yeah. can can cause it, but uh, pros upon pros upon pros upon pros who have been there and done that talk about how nerves bring on cramping uh, or have the ability to bring on cramping. Uh, just as much as physical exertion can. And we know, because we've seen Alcaraz play five-hour matches. We've seen him play two matches in one day. We oh, saw him at listen, the sorry to interrupt. Look at the U.S. Open. Three matches in a row, down a break in the fifth, and he came back and won those marathons. And then a hard-fought four-set final with Rude to follow. So, yeah, that's interesting about your study, though. Yeah, I mean, so because we've seen that happen, I mean, that only that only further confirms the idea that he was just tense. Uh, just, and then you look at how he played the break points in the first set. I think that would be a, another thing yep. to look at uh, that yep. signified just how stressed he was. So, I mean, it was really about how Novak could handle that moment having been there before. And also I just think having the best nerve management I've ever seen personally versus Alcaraz kind of relapsing into a into a zone that I think he was in for a short period of time last year where where he was playing with a lot of tension. Yeah. Then he kind of got over it and and it was back for this match. That's true because he was he was that way quite frequently on his way to the US Open. And then yes. he moved past it in New York, which was remarkable. What are your thoughts about the only other thing I want to add to this and I want to get your impressions as well is the center match in Miami, he also cramped up there. It wasn't quite as bad as here, but it was bad. And again, I think what I would say, my my feeling about that one is he's also one of the few guys, obviously Novak can make anybody nervous, but I think Sinner on a, 
when it comes to Carlos's key rivalries and key matchups, Sinner scares him a bit more than most with the power and the depth. And so I think that also must have been a similar kind of response in his mind. Do you agree? Totally agree. Uh, because, I mean, Sinner, I think, has given him historically the most trouble. And I think that probably he probably puts a lot of pressure on himself coming into that match. All right, I gotta I gotta get it together against this particular opponent. Yeah. And similarly, th- there was it was a hi- it was high intensity tennis there. Don't get me wrong, just like that second set was high intensity tennis. But from a duration standpoint, it was way too soon to cramp. That's a best of three set match. Yes, true. True. You're right. You're right. But uh, I, I do, I, I just had the feeling at the time I wasn't sure, but I think back on it, I said, look, suppose he had not cramped severely like that. I still think under those conditions, it would have been hard for him to, to beat Novak. We'll never know that. But I suspect that Djokovic was still going to win the match. Obviously, he has going to have to spend a lot more time and work harder. But his experience in those best of five set matches and Carlos's relative inexperience, I mean, Having said that, I mean, we just alluded to the U.S. Open, which where he won all those five-set matches. But still, this is Djokovic. This is Roland Garros. It's different. And also, Djokovic made a comment afterwards that was pertinent as well, which is that Carlos was coming in as the favorite. This was unusual for him. You know, up in, it's been a lark up until now. He's been magnificent and takes nothing away from anything he's achieved. But suddenly, he's coming into Roland Garros as the top seed and, and with high expectations, not only from within, but throughout the tennis community. Yeah. Uh, and since we're going to swing back to, to Novak, um, what, what is like the perspective on, on Alcaraz uh, looking at the tournament as a whole? I mean, he did destroy Stefano Tsitsipas in the yeah. previous match. Uh, he cruised, Although, Gil, although yeah. just a quick projection, he did show a bit of frailty at the end, uh, you know, after having, you know, opening up the five, two third set lead and he had all those chances to finish him off before he finally did it in the tiebreak. Maybe that was a bit of a sign there too. Uh, incredible for two sets, the way he picked him apart and just destroyed him, but did have a bit of trouble closing it up. Also, you reminded me, I, I couldn't remember how you started your, your last comment. Uh, and I did want to respond. I just remembered. I too, after the second set, was slightly leaning Novak's way because I saw how Alcaraz was dipping a little bit in the pressure points despite winning yeah. that second set, which he did in a flash. Right. I, I could see how stressed he was. In the first set, especially, the the joy that he normally plays with wasn't there at all. Right, right. And in the second set, it came back a little bit, but yeah. I could still see that it, he was very, very stressed. And that's why, even though coming in, and and I still kind of feel like Alcaraz had had the tennis to do it, but ultimately I think the mind was going to get in the way. Yeah, you know he he's fascinating because he loves to smile a lot, obviously, and he, he wants to exude that joy. And I, there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's terrific that he wants to connect with the crowds. But I'm sure that his camp is trying to get through to him that it's 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 he he can't let his guard down either and that you know you you got he has he has to keep that level of intensity very very high particularly when he plays Novak but i agree with you the first set he looked he looked uh there was a there was a certain negativity now part of it is i think he was a bit surprised by Novak's level to tell you the truth not stunned but a bit caught off guard i don't know if he expected him to play quite that well and then part of it was from within the pressure from within Let's go to uh, let's go to Djokovic and let's go to the final real quick. I mean, you're so good at thinking about these matches as as stories. So I I want to ask you what the standout moment was in that final for you because for me it was the first three points of the first set tiebreak. Yeah, no, I wouldn't disagree with that. First of all, one moment before that that I think has been overlooked that nobody talks about is he had made the comeback from 4-1 down. He got back to 4 all. He finally broke at, at 4-2 in the seventh game and got and, and fought hard, got back on serve, almost had a break point at 4 all, couldn't convert it. Physically, we're looking a bit uh, frazzled at that point. He was having a little trouble with his breathing. He was working hard. He was tense. Then 
at four or five, having not converted the break point at four all, he he held on from love 30. And three of the next four points, he came to the net. I, I was impressed with the way he played that game. It wasn't one point, but that was a good hold that's been overlooked, I think, because that was a dangerous moment at love 30, four, five, two points from losing the set. But then you're so right about the tiebreak. First of all, especially the first point, because he just went for that forehand down the line and it was as good as gold. It was, and, and it was, it was a dagger, I think, to, to root. And then the next, then he wins the next two. The second point was great too, where he guessed right at the net and volleyed into the open court. And then a nice third point to follow it. You're right. That just set the tone. It was similar in a way to the seven zip tie break against Hatchinoff uh, in, in, in the quarters, you know, which again, that was the second set tiebreak, and that turned the match his way, and he won in four. But again, was almost an impeccable tiebreak, and this one was too. And for for Rude to have worked as hard as he did to go up a break, knowing he needed this set more than Novak, and then to get destroyed in that tiebreak, I think was just a, devast a devastatingly potent blow to Rude. Uh, I mean, because he didn't play a bad tiebreak. I mean, Novak was earning almost all those points and he closed it. Not only the first three, I like the last two where he hit the ace and the serve. Uh, he, hit, he hit the ace for 6-1 and then the forehand winner behind Rude to seal it. So it was just, it was a, a masterpiece of a tiebreak and so indicative of how he plays them. And let's face it, he, he won all of his tiebreaks in the tournament, played 55 points combined and never made an unforced error in any in, in any of the tiebreaks and they were, they were crucial to him in this tournament. Yeah. I, I want to ask you specifically about the tiebreaks and the clutchness uh, just to, to add on to the, the first three points and what happened there. Yes. That forehand down the line was incredible, uh, but that was a, a 16 shot rally. And then it's physically, yeah. physically, how are you going to respond? And the next one is a 15 shot rally and yeah. Novak tries to serve in volley and he the the lob return completely neutralizes it and once yeah. again djokovic is having to run and defend and he's up for it and he gets the dig on the drop shot uh, and then anticipates well and yeah. puts away the volley and then yeah. the the next point after that is another extended rally this one is 14 shots yeah and uh and djokovic comes up with an amazing defensive lob it's like how how is he still that showed me that novak still can be a grinder, a defender, a, a physical beast at the highest level. And he doesn't lean on it as much as he, as he used to. It's just not how he wants to play anymore. But when he needs it, he can still oh, yeah. tap into it. Oh, it's there when he needs it. And I think it's demoralizing for his adversaries too, because it's that incredible blend of offense and defense. And uh, he, he gets into those tie breaks and it's like, you're not going to get a thing out of me and I'm going to attack you when I can. And if you want, if you want to force me to defend, to defend, good luck to you. Similar to what we saw in the Hatchinov match, uh, what we saw in the Fuchovic match, even in the Davidovich-Fakina match, it was after Djokovic had a lead in this final, he relaxed a little bit and started playing his best assertive offensive tennis what do you make of the forehand right now? I mean, that stood out in Australia, I think, to both of us. And I feel like he, he followed it up here with, with another similarly impressive performance on the forehand side throughout the tournament. Couldn't agree more. Couple of couple of things. Number one, just a brief reference you alluded to to Davidovich Fokina. That was said that match toughened him up. It was the third round. He'd had a couple of relatively easy matches up until then. Davidovich Fokina had beaten him in Monte Carlo a year ago. He's a very good clay court player. He was lofting his returns, a kind of high trajectory returns down the middle. He's making Novak work very hard in the win. And of course, he served for the first set, Davidovich Fokina at 6 5, and Novak broke back and won the tiebreaker from 3 1 down. And then the second set was 5 6, Novak serving set point down to get into the tiebreak. And then a pendulum swinging tie break there, 4-1 for Novak, then down 4-5, and then he wins three points in a row to close it out and finish strong in the third 6-2. I thought that was a very important match, so they just wanted to get that in. Now, uh, the forehand. Yeah, I thought, interestingly enough, I mean, I thought, yeah, it was a, very, a similarly high level to what we saw in Australia. You don't get rewarded quite as much on the clay, but nearly, nearly. 
And I would, I would say this, that was the problem early on in the final was that Rude was feeding him a lot of high trajectory kind of loopers, semi moon balls down the middle, high to his forehand and Novak was missing. But once he found his range later in the set, particularly from the tiebreaker on, it was devastating. And then the second thing that stood out to me about the final, in addition to that, was uh, to the quality of the forehand, was the serving, not just the serve, but how he backed it up the last two sets. And you go through 11 service games in the two sets, you win 44 out of 53 points. I mean, basically losing a, a less than a point every service game. So he's putting a lot of pressure back on Rude. Yeah, because his holes were so quick and he was getting tested so little. I was impressed with that, too. And I thought the wind seemed to finally, not entirely, but it died down some. The wind was really wreaking havoc for all the players throughout the fortnight. And, and I think it was driving Novak a little bit nuts at times. You know, he started serving those doubles, three doubles against Bokina, five all in the first set when the wind was at his back. There were times he couldn't gauge it. And it was really frustrating him. But... That would be the second thing, the forehand number one, the serve number two, serve in the final, particularly not so much in the other matches, but in the final. Yeah. And, and it, it gets, it's at its best. It's most potent when he's relaxed, which is it's right. true. It's true for all players, but you could just right. see it so vividly in, in these matches. Yeah. Because you could see him relax early in the second. He had to fight hard to get that first break, three or four break points, but then he got it. And once he did, you know, he was he was just sailing. And you could see him opening up. The forehand just got better and better as that set wore on. And it continued to be that way in the third. And the other, the, the other thing, it's just so many things to admire about it was we talk about the tieback. I also was very impressed with the last three games. You're, Rude, to his credit, really hung in in the third. Novak had the one break point earlier, one all that he kind of squandered with a back end down the line in the net. But then they go to four or five, and Djokovic does not want to play a loose game there and suddenly be in a fourth. So from there, he won 11 points in a row, 12 of the last 13, and with some really impressive ball striking in the process, not to mention two aces in the four or five game as well. Yeah, nine of those 12 points, I ended up charting it, were won on Novak's terms, uh, either either clear forced errors or winners. So, exactly. Yeah, it, it was an He just raised stretch. his game. It was as if he tapped into it, just pressed a button and said, okay, the, I've had enough of this. I, 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 I do not want a third set. And frankly, I don't even want to bother with another tiebreak. He really, it, it was, it was high level stuff and, and deep concentration and taking the bull by the horns and saying, I, I, I want this title and I want to end this match now. And it was some of his absolute highest level tennis. I think we've talked about this before, but I do want to ask you about the clutchness. First of all, big picture, Novak has, has gotten so good at converting these not only finals, but semifinals at majors into titles, much more efficient than he was early on in his career when the finals were kind of going both ways, a bit of a 50-50 proposition, uh, statistically at least. And then on a, on a more micro level, the the tie breaks which which you've alluded to already six and oh yeah no, no unforced errors i mean just the the clutchness of djokovic how what do you think the key is to to that he's just it's 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 almost impossible to describe it's ineffable because he he just has this quality in him when he's when his mindset is right which it seems to always be in these big occasions now, just to trace it again, you were right that early on, he lost a lot of big finals. So he had a one stage, like a five and two record. He was going strong after 2011. And then it, at one, then it became eight and eight. Now it's in major finals, 23 and 11. He's won 15 of his last 18 major finals. So I just think he's become more and more composed and confident on these occasions. The older he's gotten, there was a, there was a stage there where he wasn't and, for a variety of reasons, he lost some finals, particularly some U.S. Open finals, and I don't think he should have lost, particularly, say, 2012 against Andy Murray in the wind. Or I could cite a couple of them, Stan Wawrinka in 2016. But overall, he's just become the quintessential big match player, and I, I think he's able to find something from within. And, and he's just – I mean, we saw – you look back on the 2019 Wimbledon final, his double match point down, how, how did he recover – and win that one. Well, again, that was on, I say, a slightly off day on that occasion. 
he wasn't happy with how he served. He definitely didn't have a good day in return. And yet somehow in his back is to the wall, he summoned. So I guess I just feel like he's the best clutch competitor we've ever seen. Day in, day out, Rafa was probably the, the best competitor. There were no, Rafa would fight his way through match after match, no matter who it was and never let his guard down. Joke, Novak is more emotional in some ways, but he's become more and more adept at raising his game and tapping into his psyche on, on, on the major occasions. And it's astounding. Yeah. A, a belief, uh, a cold blooded confidence that, that translates into, into the clutch play where I think with Nadal, uh, the effort level, unbelievable, but a little bit more human when it comes to getting nervous, uh, like, right. like most tennis players do. Um, yeah, I and mean, you know what? I think I, I honestly think that what you just said is, is spot on, and that I don't think that Rafa would disagree with it. Yeah, he talks about a lot about doubts. Novak doesn't talk as much about doubts. He'll allude to it here and there. It's more about the, like the speech he gave afterwards about controlling your own destiny, and always urging. He's done it in the last two speeches at the majors. Now he's kind of urging kids to take their lives into their own hands, and that anything is possible. So he has a, a very positive attitude about it. And you could tell that he went out there, despite what he showed us in the first set when he was tense, that he always believed deep down that he was going to win that match. I have uh, three more topics on Djokovic. Two of them are going to be uh, probably kind of quicker than, than one that might be longer. So here's a quick one. Injuries. That's the only kind of downside or the nitpick that I, I feel like exists about Djokovic's 2023 is it's felt like for a lot of the time he has battled his body, whether it be in Australia, whether it be in the Roland Garros lead-up. What level of concern is there about, about Djokovic perhaps just becoming a little bit more prone uh, to, to having physical issues at 36? That's, a, that's such a fascinating question, and you, you're reading my mind because I've thought a lot about that as well. And I, when you and I had last spoken, we were on a podcast together and I was, I was just at the start of the clay court season. And uh, I believe with Saqib Ali and, and we were, we were talking about uh, the, you know, the clay court, the, the, the tears, the clay court tears and the players. And you were kidding me about that. But at that stage, I thought Novak's going to win the French because he's got it. He missed Indian Wells in Miami. He'll, he'll be fresh on the clay. I didn't think he was ever healthy in that, in that three tournament stretch. He never looked right. Even when he got to the quarters in Rome, he, he didn't play a good match against Rune at all. He was lucky to get a set the way he was playing. And there were, there were different things going on, not just the elbow. The announcers were talking about some kind of a shoulder issue. Uh, I believe it was the, the, the previous round. I mean, he, against Nori, I think before he played Nori, he had something done to his shoulder. He was getting a little treatment before the match. Okay, so I, that's what I thought might cost him Roland Garros, was that physically it, he'll always be up, for it, up to it and up for it mentally. But I thought, wow, is he going to be physically right? Did he get enough matches and is he physically there? Or are these ailments, is the elbow or something else going to be weighing so much on his mind that he can't produce his best? And then he said after the final, Gil, that, he made some reference to not having any, quote, big injuries. So, you know, there were still things going on. There was the arm in the Carlos match. But obviously, if that's all he's dealing with, I'm not concerned. But, yeah, I agree with you. And he keeps talking about it's harder to recover. It's harder to recover now than it used to be. Okay, but I still feel like he'll I, I feel deal with it. Like the the – what I liked hearing immediately after the final was how he said he's going to London early, but he's not playing anything before Wimbledon. He's going. I like that thinking. It's like, no, don't mess with it. You don't really need the matches at this stage coming up, winning the French. Just get a lot of practice matches in and let your body rest a little, let everything heal. And I think he, you know, there will be, there will be issues here and there with different issues, but I don't think it's going to be enough to stop him from playing and winning more majors and being at a high level for a couple more years. What, what do you, how do you feel about that? I've noted the, I've noted the uptick in, in slight, you know, again, most of these things, they haven't been that bad, but I, I think it's something to, to notice. And I think, I, I think Novak has certainly noticed it and he's been sometimes unhappy, uh, especially 
outwardly towards his box because yeah. he he takes these matters he doesn't see it as bad luck when he has an injury he sees it i think as his fault yeah uh, and and i guess or or guilt his fault or sometimes maybe his team's fault. his team's fault exactly yeah. but but whether it's his fault or his team's fault it's something that he feels like is in his control uh yeah. when it comes to just giving his body the best chance to be at a hundred percent uh, so, you know, he's going to give everything he has to focus on that. Uh, but, you know, father time is father time. So I think it's something to track and it's going to be, it's going to probably be an obstacle. If I were to guess when it comes to like Wimbledon, I'm not as concerned about, but the U S open, it's at the end of the year. It's, it's tough, hardcore tennis. And I, it's at least in my mind is something to consider like, oh, you know, there's a, just a little bit of concern about is he going to be able to stay healthy for that? Uh, whereas I think in the past, that's just hasn't been any. You wouldn't even think about it. Yeah. Exactly. No, that's all fair, all valid. I would only say this regarding the Open. If he manages to win Wimbledon where he'll be the clear favorite and he gets this second crack at the Grand Slam, he'd be coming in under such entirely different circumstances because the last time around two years ago, he's, he, he decided to go to the Olympics after sort of tossing and turning over it. He went, he lost to Zarev in the semis, let a big lead get away, came away. It was kind of disappointing for him. That was the semifinals, came to New York, and it was a struggle all the way, got to the finals, and as you know, he loses to Medvedev's one match away from the Grand Slam, but he never looked entirely happy during that tournament. I feel like he would come back in a different frame of mind, also having missed Indian Wells in Miami, having played so few matches on the clay leading up to Roland Garros, he's He's picking his spots better. He should be a little fresher physically and take some time off after Wimbledon. Win or lose at Wimbledon, he should gets good time off and he plays, hopefully plays Canada and Cincinnati. But if it's just Cincinnati, so, so be it. I just think he, he's, that's the way it's going to be for him from here on in, is picking his spots more, playing less, but trying to peak for these majors and, and pulling some of them off. And I do think he's going to, Really, if he manages to get through Wimbledon, I think you know he'll have a, he'll really love the opportunity, obviously, to go out have a second chance at the Grand Slam, which he could never have envisioned when it got away two years ago. Yeah, I I agree with all of that. Surface stuff uh, with with Djokovic, he's now the only man to have won all four majors three times, and he's won now two out of the last three. French Opens. I still, I think I feel like Clay, despite all of this success, if I were to rank it, is his worst surface? Is that, is that fair? Or do you now, do you, are you questioning that at all? Because I think that's almost the, that's been the status quo or the assumption for a long time. I think no, I'm still I, there. Are you still there? Oh, I'm still there. I, that's what makes the, the two winning two of the last three years so remarkable is that it is his worst surface, but yeah. worst surface for Djokovic is somebody else's best service. I mean, it's still a very high level. He struggles more with his footwork. There are a lot of things that go into it, but I, I, I think that hasn't changed. I'd still say hard courts are his best grass, a close number two and, and, and clay probably a distant three, but still, still remarkable. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I think it's worth highlighting. And it's just worth kind of taking stock of that again after a Roland Garros title, because I mean, I, I'm still, I'm still feeling that way. Uh, and again, it's, it's, it's amazing from Djokovic when you, when you even frame it like that. All right. The last Novak topic I said on my show on Monday that the only real major counting record that I can think of that he doesn't own would be just total titles, the, the major ones, the kind of very simple, big kind of pillar records would be the 109 titles for Jimmy Connors. That's the only one that I can think of that, that he doesn't really have that's significant. People were quick to say, okay, that might be the only record, but that is not probably among his chief goals. So, I'll, I'll let you kind of talk about the, the Connors thing if you'd like, but really what my, the question I want to ask is what is, what are the primary motivators moving forward for, for Novak? Just because, you know, 23, it's no guarantee that that's the number and that's enough. And that's going to 
make him clear the bar, but it is looking probable that that's the number. Uh, and obviously it all depends on if Rafa is ultimately stuck at 22 or if he can add to it. But it does feel like now that Novak's in the lead that it's not really about how many slams can I win necessarily uh, as in, in the most straightforward sense as it always has been. A couple of things. Number one, if he managed to win the Grand Slam, obviously it's still a lot of hard work ahead, winning two more, winning Wimbledon in the Open. I don't, I'm not sure wh whether that might be so satisfying that he might reevaluate everything. I just don't know what effect that would have. That would be such a crowning moment on top of everything else. As for, as for the career titles, I think it's more important to him to get to the 100 mark. You know, it, it, I think that would be a milestone and he would be very pleased with that. And maybe try to get past Roger. If he didn't get past uh, Jimmy, Jimmy, he could, he could handle it. But I think 100 would be something on his mind already. And then he'd see where he goes from there. I, 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 I maybe it becomes more and more important to him, but you know, when you're, looking to say 94 up to 109, another 15, 16 titles that he's going to need. That's he probably would have to play at least two more really, really good years. And he's playing less. So he's having fewer opportunities to win titles. It's not going to be easy. Second thing that I think for just for a historical value, Gil, not no knock on Connors, who was immensely consistent across the years. And I admired that about him, how hard he worked to win every tournament he could. Having said that, there was a stage where he was playing what amounted to minor league events that are counted. They were part of the old Bill Reardon circuit. Most of the top players were playing WCT. He was playing the Reardon circuit, which really amounted to 250s or sometimes they seemed like even less. Yeah, they were valid and players were trying and yeah, they were legitimate tournaments, but they were almost gimmies. Uh, so he got a lot more cheap ones. I don't know whether Novak knows that or not, but People who are around at the time are aware of that. Uh, yeah. So I, that's why I say I still think it's more significant to him to get to 100 and perhaps to surpass Federer and, and, and leave it at that. And if he didn't quite catch Connors, I think he could handle it. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Thank you for providing the, the fullest context to, to the, the number uh, that Connors has reached. That's obviously important. Uh, I don't think it's a big deal. It's just as I was going through, what yeah. records are there to break? That was just one that that did stick out. I would add, and I saw this in the comment section, and I fully agree with anyone who commented this. Uh, the Olympics, the Olympics next year, yes. uh, are are huge. Yeah, I agree. He'll, you know, I'm sure when the year starts and he's planning, that's going to be one of his top, one of his. I don't know how he would put it, but I'm sure he would make it in his mind almost as important as anything. And uh, he'll definitely want to be ready, ready for that. And uh, he's had such bad luck up until now because the previous Olympics was Del Potro got him in the first round. And that was a very tough draw. And then, you know, th then this last one, of course, it looked like he, he was sailing through the draw until the zero and he was up a set and a break and, cruising and then it all got away from him so he hasn't and then you know it just previous olympic it's all been he's he, it, he lost to murray and wimbledon at the olympics in 12 so he's had a really he's never really been at his very best so i and i and it would mean a lot to him to get a gold obviously so you're right when he's starting to sort of lean into 2024 that's going to be paramount in his mind yeah we're, we're in agreement there okay so Finally ready to move on from Djokovic, but I'm glad we, we took it from every angle it was necessary to do. Uh, Rude, let's, let's kind of address Casper making uh, a third major final. Hasn't been able to get over the hump. Uh, I felt that he played close to his best tennis with the exception of being deflated in the second set. I think other than that, it was, it was pretty good from Casper, but I'm wondering uh, if you agree with that and what's the biggest improvement you th you would like to see him make in his game so that he can challenge to win these matches in the future. Well, just a quick, a quick comment about what you just said there. Yeah, he was definitely deflated. Totally agree. Second set. Having said that, he made Djokovic work hard to get that early break. Mm -hmm. And then at 2-5, he's down 15-40. And Djokovic breaks him there. He starts serving the third. The third might have ended up being easier just with scoreboard pressure with Djokovic serving out ahead. 
and he held on and did a really nice job to hold on there and make Novak serve it out, which was an easy hold for Novak. But so I thought even there, yes, a little deflation early on, but he didn't, he didn't completely sag. And then he played a very good third. Mm-hmm. Here's how I look at it. I mean, he played Rafa. That, that was the toughest one of all. And Rafa is a buddy of his and he has, just has so much respect for him and maybe too much respect. I don't say that disrespectfully to Rafa, but just from Rude's end, perhaps that was the, the psychology understandable that was a tough experience then he played quite a good four set match against carlos at the u.s open really a terrific match and acquitted himself well and you know very close to he could have been two sets to one up it was really a a battle and now this one where again i thought he played comparably to how he played against rafa in a way he didn't get it it, I, i mean with the way he played against carlos in the u.s open in the sense that he didn't get a set this time but he played quite well. You know, he played a, a very good first set, quite a good third set, not a terrible second, but just up against a better player. We have to also mention that at Miami last year, he lost a good match to Carlos in the finals. They lost to Novak in the year-end ATP championships. That's a lot of big matches for him. I just think the problem, Gil, I want to get your impressions. I just feel like they're all better than he is. That he's, and he's not overachieving. It's not an accident if he gets to that many important title round contests. But you wouldn't have expected him to win any of those matches going in, right? Do you feel that way? Oh, I compl- I completely agree. I mean, he hasn't disappointed necessarily in a big final when it comes to the result. Yeah, maybe maybe his first couple were were uh, m- maybe not his most assertive and offensive tennis with his weapons like like his forehand. But I think he's remedied that for the most part in the in the recent big finals. I, I think. Technically speaking, Steve, I don't. I really think the way he defends his backhand is exploited by a lot of these players. I think Alcaraz at the U.S. Open was drawing the slice backhand and just coming in and attacking the floater. I think Novak in this match on clay was hitting these crisp forehands down the line and was getting another you know slice every time, and yeah. that put Djokovic in charge of the point. One of the things I really want him to see, and it's not the only thing, but it's one of the major things for me, learn how to hit the defensive backhand and drive it. Hit an open stance backhand like so many of the, if you look at the top of the ranking, so many of the players have have mastered that shot. Those are great points. I I will say this. It's less of a liability than it was. Everything you just said is true regarding the slice and how he can be exploited. Having said that, he had some very good two-hander drives down the line against Novak, and the cross court had pretty good depth. Doesn't look to me quite as vulnerable as it was, but he still has a ways to go. Whether he can manage to pull that off, I don't know. I mean, it's the right ask. It's definitely the right ask when you say that. Whether he has the ability to do it, I just don't know. Obviously, the forehand's terrific. The serve is a bit underrated. He knows how to volley. And he'll he'll stay in the upper regions. I will say this: I wouldn't have, would never have predicted that he would be back in this final the way he played on this clay court circuit. So, hats off to him. Things broke nicely because Holger Rune played a terrible opening two sets. Maybe the Sarundalo match just took too much out of him, but he wasn't there for two sets, and that was a break for Rude to have Rune so shaky and so phys- physically and mentally off. And then he, he ended up winning in four there, and then. Zara obviously had some kind of a leg injury because he pulled out of his next tournament. And that explained his subpar performance, taking nothing away from Rude because he's still, he's going to be hard to beat on, on either of those matches anyway. But I, I didn't expect it going in. I, you know, I didn't think he had a lot of confidence. And I, I really do admire that, that, he, that he was able to do that because he knew many people were doubting him and people were saying, look, he's got all those points to protect. It's not going to happen. And he did it. Yeah, I thought it was going to be a stressful situation for him. I saw a lot of big hitters like Nicholas Jari and Jan Lennart Struffway yeah. losing in the first round. Uh, the conditions, I think, also ended up helping him. Just the fact that the the balls were playing slower this year. Yeah. Now, not that he needs that necessarily, but I do think, particularly in the the Jari match, for example, I mean, he was he was returning these bombs uh, for serves yeah. quite easily. And I just think the conditions helped. Well, he also was, was 
was obstinate on the big points. He was driving jarring, not saving break points. And yeah. just he, it, it, he had lost him the last time, but he really, he just was so much the superior big point player in that match. And Jari, Jari's frustration just seeped through. You could see it. You'd see that the fact that he just felt he couldn't convert any time it mattered. And that, that was a, a well-played match on Wood's part to really continuously frustrate him. For Holger Runa, is it as simple right now as if he improves his physical consistency? Uh, it's not a term that I use often, but I just yeah. think in his matches, he's in and out uh, physically and, and mentally sometimes. Is it is it as simple as he fixes that and now he's basically at the highest level possible? I think so. I really do because I love his game. He's such a natural a ball striker, you know, the forehand, it, it's one, I think it's one of the better, it's forehand is going to keep improving. It's two handers. Great. He's aggressive. He's not afraid to come forward. The serve will get better too. Yeah. I, it's something in the psyche. It's something in the mindset. And he's maybe a Patrick Moritaglu can help him with this. I, he needs somebody to sort of make, get him to slow down, calm down, take it a match at a time, not get ahead of himself and, and not be quite as contentious as he is. Yeah, it's largely about the mental side of the game that carries over into the physical. Now, the physical, you mentioned the physical. Yeah, I don't I don't think any of us can fully figure out what's going on there. You know, with a day off at the majors at his age, he should have recovered better for the root yeah. match. There's no reason for that. You know, that's what's so great about the majors is you have the day off unless rain comes along, which was not the case in this French Open at all. So I'm a little bit mystified by that. But I do share your appreciation of his skills. And I think if he's able to overcome these, these issues he has now, then in the long term, he's going to be playing so many big matches against Carlos, against Sinner. He's going to be right in the mix. I'm not saying he's going to be another Carlos, but I do think he's going to be someone capable of winning majors and up there at, and certainly up there near the top of the sport. I agree. I also thought that the start against Rude, the first two sets were were bizarre at the same time coming into the tournament. I I had a feeling that whenever Runa was eliminated, no matter what round it is, it's probably going to be because his legs are gone because I saw it happen in Monte Carlo and I saw it happen in, in Rome, uh, in Munich, yeah. in, in Munich, it wasn't the the legs, but I think there was a upper body, I think a shoulder issue yeah. in, in that yeah. match. So uh, it just, you know, he's very, very young. It doesn't seem like best of five for two weeks right now is is going to be easy for him no but as you mentioned you're referring to other events that were not best of five where the issues still creep in on him so in the final in the know, final at least but yeah but he's got to they have to address it yeah they've got to figure this out just as like just as carlos's team you know they want to try to help him figure out what's going on with the, the some of the cramping and how how he can avoid it these you know but in in uh holger's case I just, I still can't see him how in the long run he doesn't achieve prodigiously. I just don't see how it, maybe it, maybe it's chron a chronic issue he's got with his mind or his body, but I don't, I don't believe it. I think he's, he will grow into that talent. I see him figuring out, figuring it out. Uh, he did yeah. figure out the, the cramping. I haven't seen cramping in a while, which was right. a big problem when he was right. still on the challenger level. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. that's, that's positive. I want to go all the way back to, I'm pretty sure it was Monday. If I'm remembering correctly, the first Monday of the tournament, uh, where Daniil Medvedev loses in the first round Oh yeah, yes. to, to Tiago Zybach Vilch. Yeah. Uh, glad you said it, Gil, cause I don't want to have to mention his name. <laughs> I, <laughs> it is the, it is the hardest and, and wildest pronunciation i maybe i've ever encountered uh, <laughs> i i truly believe that there might be one other that it's escaping my mind that that's a even even crazier we can call him tiago though he he qualified he's got a big game he was a very very promising young player but ultimately daniel after winning rome had high expectations uh, for Roland Garros and and to see him go out in the first round was a surprise. Let me just, I mean, what did you make of the match? What did you think? 
I, I, I didn't think it was going to happen either. Granted, the wind, maybe the wind, the wind didn't help. Uh, he didn't have a particularly good serving day. It wasn't an easy day to serve. And he got broken three times in the fifth set. But I just thought, you know, he was in danger of going down two sets. He saved a couple of set points. He then went up two sets to one. I couldn't believe he was going to lose it from there. And the last two, he lost three and four. And I was disappointed in his performance. And I thought, look, okay. So Corda got him in the Australian. He loses to the Brazilian here. In between, he won 39 out of 44 matches, five titles. It's got to be pretty disappointing to him that his two worst tournaments are the majors. Mm -hmm. That's where you're supposed to define yourself. And here we go back to when he won the U.S. Open in 2021 over Novak and probably should have won the 2022 Australian when Rafa made a stupendous comeback to beat him in five sets from two sets down. I, I He's enigmatic to me. Uh, uh, I just don't get it, Gil, entirely, because, yes, the, the Rome triumph should have been a big lift, for, and it should have been enough to get him through that first-round match, even if it was five. But that's where the great players, they don't let go, and they don't lose those kinds of matches. So he tried to defend himself afterwards, I understand, and he tries to be honest and said, I, I fought hard, I fought hard. He did. He did, and he didn't bicker as much with his corner. There were some good signs of, but on the other hand, the performance, I thought, was lackluster and disappointing. And I thought his experience should have showed, his class should have showed in the fifth set, and it did not. I'm in two schools of thought on it. First of all, I think Tiago's forehand, despite his inconsistencies, especially mentally, I feel it's a very, very special shot that goes, yes. goes such a long way in wind, on on clay which as i mentioned is playing a little bit slower than it has in years past which uh, i don't think was expected especially after a, a wet rome oh gil uh, gil let me just interrupt a second i just remembered the member that he, he did talk about how his opponent was able to sort of muscle the ball that he was able mm -hmm. to take advantage of those balls and with it with his spin and power still hit the winners and that he admitted that it was harder for him with his flatter strokes those balls didn't suit Medvedev. that's a fair enough fair assessment but and i agree about the forehand it's, it's a spectacular shot he was hitting a lot of lines this guy he was phenomenal i still think Medvedev should have found a way to win i, I understand the idea of a tight contest and a nerve-wracking contest and a battle but you've just won rome you, you you're playing what looks like the best clay court tennis of your life you've been you've been playing some some you know you you've been playing some of the most consistent tennis of your career and winning that many titles, five titles already is, is phenomenal. And yet you go out in the first round when, when the chips are on the line, when it really matters. That's, that's where you're supposed to define yourself. So I don't mean to be too critical, but I think you should have found a way to win. It's fair. And, and the best of five set record is, is poor. It's three yeah. wins against nine losses. Now it was, yeah. it was, it was pretty good in uh, 2021. Uh, he he won a couple of five setters in 2021, uh, but but if you take the full the full picture, it's not good. And my other than other than kind of discovering that maybe Medvedev's bigger forehand still sometimes isn't big enough. Other than that, uh, I think the way he plays and how much running he needs to do and the energy he needs to exert. I would venture to say he probably likes best of three. I mean, when he won his U.S. Open title, it wasn't really, it wasn't really playing long matches in no, that tournament. No. He he lost yeah. one set. He lost one set, and it was to Von de Zonschult. So I think it's fair to say that you get Medvedev in best of five set battles, and maybe there's vulnerability there. Very fair point. And I think we saw that vulnerability against Rafa Nadal in that Australian Open final. Now, fair, he had come back against Felix from match point down and won that in five. So it's, mm -hmm. it's not impossible for him, but I agree. You sit him down and, and you put the truth detector on him and say, okay, Daniel, best of three or best of five, he presses the best of three button instantly. Yep. Last one. We go to grass. Djokovic the heavy favorite. It's been a while since he's even lost at Wimbledon. It's been even longer since he's lost at Wimbledon healthy. Who is his main rival? Maybe it's not one name. Maybe you have one name. I'm not sure. Surprise me. 
I don't have one name. I mean, conceivably, for instance, if Zarev was able to build on his semifinal showing here and get on something and, and was having a really good serving day, he could be a bit scary on the grass. But I still think the rest of his game is a little a little shaky at times. And he doesn't like the lower bounces. He's talked about it. He's not wild about grass at this point. But if he had a great serving day, maybe. Medvedev on a great serving day. But I, I still, I agree with you. The Djokovic is the clear Sinner showed last year, played two great sets, lost in five. He could be dangerous on a given day. And obviously, Carlos, we still don't know entirely what to expect from him on the grass. So there's a handful of guys that are dangerous. But Djokovic, with that kind of a record, winning in 18 and 19, there was no Wimbledon in 20, and then he's won the last two for four in a row. It, 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 and he's going for his eighth title overall, and he wants that. That's a record he wants because he'd like to t- you know, tie Roger. So, uh, yeah, I don't think there's a standout opponent you can say, okay, here's this is the guy that's going to – somebody's going to have to have a great, great day. And he's going to have to be a little bit off, too. I mean, he's this has been this has been his tournament, and with good reason, the way the grass plays these days. And once it gets past the slickness of those first couple of rounds, that's where actually I think he struggles the most. It's, it's, it's not a lot of fun to play on those courts with, with – in the especially opening day and maybe second round and then they become closer to hard courts as the tournament progresses so and he gets better and better yeah i don't it, it, could, could you pick one guy that you think would be the toughest if i if i have to choose despite the discussion we just had i i think it's medvedev yeah just yeah. just given look this is the guy who has been so consistently good, uh, a constant producer of results on low bouncing, faster leaning uh, surfaces. And I, I do think he was moving fairly comfortably on on the grass uh, in the lead up to, to Wimbledon last year. Uh, the deep return position can get him into trouble against players who come to net. So like Hercotch beat him a couple years ago because yeah. Hercotch yeah. is just going to come forward right away. So... Yeah. I mean, I don't love that aspect of it, but other than that, I think the flat balls and the serve, you know, the the consistency in general. I I think if I have to pick a name, it's Medvedev. Well, also it's the matchup. The Novak Novak yeah. has an immense respect for Medvedev's game, and for him, it's it's maybe the toughest matchup, you know, on any surface. So. I wouldn't disagree with that. And that's why I, I mentioned him among my candidates, but I still think even then I want to see him. I I'm not convinced that, you know, that he's as good on these courts as he is on indoor hard or, you know, some of the faster hard and other lower bouncing courts. It's still a challenge for him. He does remarkably well, but I want to, I could still see him getting picked off before he played Novak in a semi or final. I mean, you know, he, I'm assuming now that the way the seedings will work is that Djokovic will end up being seeded one, Alcaraz two, Medvedev three, I suspect. So the question is going to be, which half does he end up on? Uh, you know, who gets stuck with him in the semis or does he get to the semis? Yeah, and, and let's address Alcaraz just since, since we haven't. I think a lot less time on the forehand, the lower bounce. I think both of those things hurt. The fact that he doesn't get as much out of his serve just because of hitting spots. Still, uh, I, I think that hurts. You know, he, he's gone up against Sinner, and Sinner has been able to return very aggressively, very effectively. And, and Sinner beat him there last year. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, yeah. I, I think his serve can still, I, it's still not, it's still a question mark to me on grass, not really on other surfaces, but, but on grass. Um, and then, Sometimes also just getting returns in play, which was a problem even against Novak on that clay uh, in the first set, especially. So I I still think he's a contender. He's, he does a lot of great things, but that's why uh, for me, that's why he's just downgraded on the surface a bit. Yeah. You, you made a lot of good points. I think the best one was about the time on the forehand, you know, he really is going to have to adjust and that showed up in the center match last year, definitely showed up. So It'll be fascinating to see, and this, and just also to see how he responds to the disappointment of what happened at Roland Garros, and how much does he play before Wimbledon? I haven't heard anything about his schedule yet, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how well he can adapt this year to the grass. 
Yeah. Steve, this was uh, fantastic as always. Gil, I enjoyed it. I really did. I, you know, I could continue. We, we could probably go on for four or five hours, but I don't think it would be fair to the listeners. I think we've given <laughs> them enough and I hope they enjoyed it. I agree. I'm sure they will. We'll let them move on with uh, with their lives and uh, we'll keep them hungry for uh, for that post U.S. Open chat, even though they would like us to to break down <laughs> Stuttgart after this week. I'm sure. <laughs> OK, well, thanks a lot. Thank you. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.